0: You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And no geeks were hurt during the making of this programme. I was. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Megan. Yes, you are. And don't let anybody take that away from you. How are you doing, my friend?
1: I'm tired. We're having a a long run at work because we've got managers and supervisors on holiday at the moment. So me and Scott are both doing a lot of shifts in a block. I've still got one more shift to get through and I've been doing night shifts, today's shifts, etc. And uh, we've had the Swifties. The Swifties have been all over the cinema this weekend.
0: It's good for cinema.
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, it's Friday night. The the screens were sold out in it. And, you know, we'll talk about it in the box office later of how it's been performed worldwide which has been pretty good spoiler alert but it, it has been interesting looking online and seeing like seeing some of the negativity that is coming from sadly the film community about it really? first of all you have like a load of the moaning that like uh why is a concert film taking up so many screens in cinemas people should be watching films. Yeah, people should be watching films. But unfortunately, at this time of year, people aren't watching films. So let's fill the screens with people who will come and pay money and keep the cinemas running. Stop being so elitist. And then you've got, you've probably seen some of the videos of people dancing in the screens and enjoying themselves and like waving and like, you know, like they're at a concert. Because effectively, they are at a concert. They are, yeah. And there's people that like, this is disgraceful, it's disrespectful to the rules and etiquette of a cinema. It's like, you know what, I work in a cinema, and we think this is great because they are watching a concert that they can't afford to go and see live because the tickets are too high. We give them the chance to experience that, and they are loving it. There was loads of them dancing at the front of our screens. They were like, you know, all the teen girls were like, doing all the moves for the dancers, throwing themselves on the floor at the relevant points where they're supposed to throw themselves on the floor, etc. And they are loving it. That's what it's about. It's about enjoyment. Yes, when you're watching a... You know, when Killers of the Flower Moon comes out, if someone starts getting up and dancing in that, then we'll be dragging
0: them out the screen. That would be the most bizarre <laughs> thing to do during that movie, ever.
1: I, I don't know. We'll find out next week when I get a chance to see it. But, you know... <laughs> Uh, but it's just bizarre that the the snobbiness of some of the film community out there saying, well, this is disgusting and this is disrespectful. It's like, it's not. To whom? To whom is it disrespectful? I, I don't know. And I've seen today online, there's been a thread because someone said, like, people are enjoying themselves, let them enjoy themselves. They're watching a concert, let them enjoy it how they want to enjoy it. And loads of people saying, well, you know, feel what about the poor cinema workers? Tell you what. Us poor cinema workers don't feel too bad about it. And someone posted a video of a like which a cinema worker had done of a screen that had been trashed, popcorn everywhere, cups everywhere, yada 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 to go, Well, this is disrespectful, isn't it? And someone else, lovely person that they are, tracked down that that video came out when an end game was released, and that was the result of a Marvel screening. I can tell you that the Swifties have been fantastic. They've been the tidiest audience that we've had in quite some time. They've been respectful, they've enjoyed it, and they've had a great time. They've brought cinemas, some well-deserved business at a time when, you know, other all, all, all films that are out are not needing the capacity of screens that the Swift fans have been taking up. So why not give it over to something else? We've been doing arts films for years. We've been doing Royal Opera House, National Theatre. We've been doing concerts. We had Metallica. We've had Red Hot Chili Peppers in the past. You know, there's been concert films for ages, which no one's moaned about in the film, film community. But Taylor Swift comes around, which all of them don't want to watch, and all of a sudden it's like, we don't want this on our doorstep. Grow up, people. Grow up.
0: And it's not like this is a new a new phenomenon. There have been concert films yeah. for ages. Having directed at least three concert films, I would love to see my concert films on in the cinema and uh, and you think of movies like Talking Heads Stop Making Sense which has just got reissued by A24 and it's doing remarkably good business it's I'm thinking the Rocky Horror Show the Rocky Horror Show just came to mind
1: the audience interactivity in that is fantastic and we're showing that today at the cinema. And, you know, I was leaving before that screening was going in. And I, I was leaving just thinking, I hope people are going to dress up like last time and, you know, bring their slices of toast to throw in the air. No one complains about that. No.
0: Yeah, it's snobbery. just it's snobbery. Snobbery. The thing about uh, about this movie as well, I mean, all kudos to Taylor Swift. She's a very Bright individual.
1: Yes, since she got back all her rights to her music and like re-recorded it to gain the rights because she was yeah. really done over by her previous management. She's got a sharp head on her shoulders and like manages herself um, and yeah. fantastic.
0: So she cut out the studios, didn't she? She went straight yeah. to the cinemas. Cut out distribution. Went straight to the cinemas and basically did a deal. Just just money in a in her pocket.
1: Which uh, I love the gimmick that they did with the ticket pricing the tickets were always 1989 because that was apparently one of her album names or what song name. And also the child's tickets were 1313 because 13 is her favourite lucky number. So everything was done for a reason and it's really smart marketing. And, yo, does it need multiple shows over the coming weeks? I'm not too sure that it does. But this weekend, it's been a positive boost for cinemas across the UK for definite. And looking at the figures that we'll talk about later, Definitely in the US, but because I've been so busy, man, I'm struggling to catch up with TV. There's too much. I'm
0: doing pretty good. I mean, there's still a lot out there I've not watched yet. I'm I'm catching up. I'm on a mass mission to catch up with all the shows. And I have this rule: I can only watch a certain amount of shows before (laughs) I start a new one. Uh, I know it's 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 something in the water. (laughs) <laughs> Gen 5 or Gen V Gen V I'm, I'm sort of struggling with it I'm three episodes in
1: still so not got past episode one and you know with the boys I couldn't wait for each episode to drop with this one I have not even watched the ones that dropped on the first week because I got to the end of the first episode and I thought eh, I'll put it on the back burner because there's other things that I was watching I finished watching Continental
0: yeah yeah I did that
1: I quite enjoyed it yeah it, and I lo- I loved the it music. got better the music is great better. oh it's a the soundtrack album for that with all the seventies tunes that were used. I need that in my life. It was beautiful music. Yeah, the final episode. I think it built quite nicely to that. And it, you know, we yeah, we said when we talked about the first episode that it felt like they were trying to do too much, but also too little at the same time. But I think it, it kind of came together quite well in the finale. Yeah. Still think it was slightly overlong.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I I didn't love it. I I did I did enjoy it. I, I'm still with Invasion on Apple. Yeah, I'm feeling, I'm doing that thing where I I don't feel like I need to watch it. I just feel I have to get it done. Did you have that? You're watching a TV show. You just go, I'm just, I'm just carrying on with this.
1: Yeah, you just feel that you have, you're so in that pit now that you have to continue with it. Yeah. For people in the UK, interview with a vampire landed on iPlayer this
0: week. I I need to get, I need to get that into my life.
1: I I want to rewatch it and sit and watch it with uh, the wife and the young'un. And really terrorize the young and with how bloody and brutal that can be. And also, um I don't know have you seen the first episode of House of Usher?
0: No, no, I haven't. yeah. it's on that that Ooh. list after this this uh, bunch of TV shows are done. it'll be it'll be that. Mr. Mercedes has landed on Disney plus, yeah, uh, which I never, I never got chance to see the first time because I think it it, it was on Hulu and it, it didn't land in the UK. and it's a Stephen King story. Uh, I'm a big fan of the book, and last week I I pointed out that my neat thing was Ollie, where that character originated from, so get through this tract of series. I'm just finishing off season three of Only Murders, which I I love. Not as great as the previous ones, but I'm enjoying it nonetheless. With House of
1: Usher, I don't know where I'm going to find time to watch the rest of it, but I really do want to watch it. I like the fact that he's kind of done an anthology series of Poe, but tied it all into the same family. And it's each of their stories getting told as to how they all died. It's great. Uh, It's Flanagan. Of course, it's great. The guy can can adapt from literary material to the visual medium in a perfect manner.
0: I got something to say. My first film, and I probably mentioned this on the show because I made a thing. (laughs) My first (laughs) show was a surrealistic stage show about the life of Edgar Allan Poe. In musical form, I tell you, <laughs> and that ended up in cinemas alongside Taylor Swift in Germany. We, we
1: need to deep dive that at some point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we need to find it. Go into a bargain bin somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> it will be somewhere. I don't know where it is. I I uh, I got locked out of the edit room in the end. Oh. Um, uh, but yes, that was my my first film was a was a Swifty. Was a Poe. shall we say? <laughs> was a yeah, Swifty Big fan. My favorite all time poem is is the raven
1: Uh, i think that's like episode i think that's one of the last episodes in the series as well that that's the title of that episode so um it's going to be a good series to work through but it's one that i think that i'll feel happy not bulk watching it i want to watch it in bits and pieces
0: yeah yeah
1: i want to savour it i want to i want to relish it i've
0: got to get through the bear actually before i get to this
1: so much tv and everything just keeps landing so every time that I think I'm almost caught up with this show, another thing lands. You know, we've got Loki, Loki. at the moment. Which, Loki. Wow. Second episode was marvellous. Oh, mm. this is what we want. Um, there'll be news about Marvel's couldn't state in the news section in a bit. Um, but yeah, that, that's what my weekend is. And I'm a bit hyper at the moment because, as you know, from the mo- multiple times that I've been tired when I've been doing this, I don't go tired and sluggish. I start rattling off and going all over the place. So uh, this is going to be an interesting recording. Beware. Beware. <laughs> Anything can happen in the next half hour. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great TV show. Uh, well, well, here's the thing. We set a question every week. We call it our social challenge. We set, I, I thought it, it wasn't going to do the business, but it seems last week's question did pretty good.
1: I think we tapped into a vein here. Uh, the question was, uh, we, we went for black and white films. Um, the, we generalised the question to what black and white film stands out for you as being a great film in which the black and white aspect brings something to it. Something that the addition of colour would possibly diminish the impact, be it a modern film or an old black and white film. And then I also threw in a bonus question. What was the first black and white film that you watched and liked and how old were you at the time? Just to get a feel for like how people were introduced to black and white. And yeah, we had uh, some pretty good responses. The Mastodon crowd jumped on it in the first 10 minutes. So uh, we got quite a good few bites on day one on there. But we'll start with Facebook, where some of the the usual regular names will come up. Helen Blair, uh, she has to admit that she doesn't watch many black and white films, but one that stands out, particularly of recent years, is The Artist. It was released in 2011, Hmm. and it's not like they didn't have the option for colour, but being an old style of silent movie, it worked perfectly. And yeah, that's a great example of how you utilize it in a modern context. Owen Cooper posted today to say, currently watching Nosferatu for the first time. Oh, I hope you enjoyed it. That is an absolute treat of a film. I have to say that The Invisible Man is their favorite. Uh, Sunset Boulevard is also another one. And I've got a lot of love for Sunset Boulevard. What a great film. Lindsay Story, the first black and white film that she remembers seeing, was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Loved it. Loved Betty Davis from that day on. Uh, Think Up must have been about eight, others uh, that Lindsay loves, All About Eve, Sunset Boulevard, Killer Mockingbird, Mildred Pierce, An Imitation of Life. And there was one that she remembers watching with Diana Dawes, thinks it's called Witness for Prosecution.
0: Don't know. I'll check it out.
1: Also recently watched The Claude Rains Invisible Man, which she thought was superb. Um, And there's some absolute classics in there, absolute classics which don't need the colour. In the conversation that me and Lindsay had on the Facebook page afterwards, I pointed out, you know, it's a wonderful life. For example, is a film that loses its charm in the colorized version.
0: Yeah, I mentioned to you, I'd I've I've done that. I saw the somebody bought me as a Christmas present because they know my love for this film. Bought me the colorized version. Oh, an abomination!
1: It's the same film, and the colorization is done pretty well, but it just it loses something. It really does lose all the magical charm of it. She also then remembered Young Frankenstein. Great choice. Young Frankenstein. Perfect black and white Didn't make my list, but yeah. It's uh, some great, great suggestions there. And Ziggy Rokita. Not certain I can remember the first, but I certainly return frequently to some like it hot. Given that there were several color films that Marilyn Monroe, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon have appeared in, it always struck me how black and white better helped place an age and time on the film. And many moons ago, when video players had just come out, managed to get their hands on a Betamax, wow, showing age there. Wow. Recording of Some Like It Hot. The family managed to watch one half of it, with a view to watching the second half a couple of nights later. But then their house was broken into, and the video player, amongst other things, was stolen. (laughs) No one really commented on the loss of the player, only that they wouldn't be able to see the rest of the film.
0: (laughs) Uh, I I know Ziggy Rakita. I need one of the coolest guys you'll ever, ever meet. You'll meet him at my birthday, all being well.
1: Fantastic. I look forward to talking about Some Like It Hot because that is one of my that was one which was on my list, but I've scrubbed it off because it's now being covered. Let's work round the other houses before we get round to the Mastodon crowd. Yeah. Over on Blue Sky, Dennis Obie. I do love black and white movies and some of my favourites. Casablanca, that was on my list. That's yeah. that's the perfect film. Um A Place in the Sun, Citizen Kane, and again Sunset Boulevard, getting a lot of votes, Sunset Boulevard. Many black and white movies have that special magic with music, sound stages, locations that really don't look too convincing, but it has charm and magic.
0: Classic Hollywood.
1: Yeah. First black and white film they think they saw, it's got to be The Flying Duchess. Um, But over on X, we got a vote for Casablanca from Stevie Dan 1969. Delighted to have seen this in the cinema. Couldn't take my eyes off Ingrid Bergman. Oh, Ingrid Bergman was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And Rachel, who's at Sue Denim, Psycho, the perfect film in its Mm. perfect medium.
0: I think I said Psycho.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think you put it in one of your replies. Through um, Spotify, Stephen Young, Charlie Chaplin, the kid. He doesn't even say anything in the days before talkies, but it's so well made. And my mumsy, (laughs) my mumsy, there's a reason why this is my film that I go back to so often and I love. It's a Wonderful Life. Best one ever. Yeah, I got. I inherited that from my mum. So over on Mastodon, Dirty Old Town said, "Knight of the Hunter" for the main question. Its otherworldliness Ooh, could only be harmed by color. And yeah, miracle yeah. on Thirty Fourth Street for the bonus question. Probably less than six years old when they first saw it. Um, I've still not seen Knight of the Hunter, so it's now being oh. added onto the list of potential deep dives. So schedule that in for some time next year. Nikki at Scooby Doombies, love that name. Yeah. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966? Yeah, the colour photo stills are stunning, but somehow they think it would have been a bad move to have actually made it in colour. And Arsenic and Old Lace, they think, is the first black and white film that they remembered seeing, probably around about the age
0: of nine. I'm going to jump in there, Hoss. I've just remembered uh, some of the first movies I ever saw in black and white. And and I've got to thank my parents for this because I've had an an eternal love of these guys and that was the marx brothers yeah uh, the marx brothers films were on they had a run of them on bbc2 way back in the day and uh I, I was allowed to stay up late and i think late by something like nine o'clock uh mm-hmm. to watch them and i've been a marx brothers fan especially the first the first three or four when zeppo yeah. was still in and i have such a memory of, of watching the marx Brothers films. And I think they were my first. And then slightly later, uh, the universal horror movies of The Wolfman, uh, Frankenstein. I was never a big fan of Dracula with Bella Lugosi because it's it's very dull. But yeah. uh, but I love those films. Absolutely love them. And, and there's no point to having them colorized because it would take away, would take away the purity of them. There, yeah. I said it. I said that. The purity.
1: I'll tell you what my first one was once we have gone through everyone else's but Mark's Brothers I came to quite late um, I was in my mid-teens by the time I finally discovered the Marx Brothers and boy they are so good. Um, Rhea Resists saw Indian Love Song when they were about nine years, nine years old, loves black and white movies since, ever, especially Cary Grant movies and thinks that the man who shot Liberty Valance is a good black and white and needs to stay that way. Salty Red Popcorn, The rich black and white divides throughout film noir make them often feel unimaginable in colour. And I'd have to go with Nightmare City. Yes, I know a lot of people love the Del Toro remake, but the black and white of the original helps make it feel more nightmarish and murky. And their first film? Something like Angels with Dirty Faces or some other James Cagney flick when they were about six or seven, I think. And still a massive fan decades later. Ben Keeping Quiet, who's at Benjamin Cox. First question, the third man and M. Both exceptional films in black and white. And second question, honestly can't remember. Knows it's a cop-out to say that, but it's the honest truth. And I have to kind of say the same because it doesn't help me to remember what my first black and white film is. The fact that as a child, I had a black and white portable TV in my room. And that's where (laughs) I watched a lot of old films on a Sunday afternoon on BBC2. So as far as I was aware, everything I was watching was black and white. Uh, Rob Christopher, and this is a great choice, The Elephant Man immediately comes to mind wouldn't work in color for a whole variety of reasons and i wish i had thought what that one myself and i can't believe it yeah what a great choice
0: I, i can't believe i didn't think that
1: david harlan threw out a few suggestions double indemnity marvelous and provided screen like screen grabs as well to show some of the stark areas and the double indemnity one it's all shadow and darkness and that would be lost in color it just become murky in color and it's getting those contrasts of like little gleams of light within the darkness. I don't think you can quite get that in a color scope. Young Frankenstein gets another nod and a razor head, uh, which, Ooh, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, yeah. It's otherworldly as a result. And Ozzy at Mastodon World, Tragedy at Macbeth from 2021. The shadows and bleak atmosphere they create in it is astounding. It's an air an of mist hangs over the whole production. And having seen it myself, yeah, I was taken aback when I first saw that it was black and white, but I can't imagine that not being in black and white now, because it worked so well. And it was very basic set design as well. It was simple use of like white scenery. And so you get the shadows, you get the contrast, and it plays perfectly. As for the first, can't say for sure, but think it was Aronofsky's pie. Would have been in high school okay. when they came across it. So thankfully not watching Alanowski's Pie at like four years old, which I think would be a bit wrong. Before before we shift over to my ones, Carl Hodkin also submitted Lighthouse. That was another vote for Lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. And also another vote for Elephant Man. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing the same ones come round because they're the ones that, you know, they, can, they kind of deserve the black and white. Uh, my ones, I had Lighthouse on my list. I think again, it's the fact that it's the fact that it uses a small frame as well. It goes for the box frame, so your your attention is purely centre of screen, and having so much shadow and darkness enveloping the characters pulls you into the characters more. And in colour, again, I think it'd be lost. Uh, Casablanca gets a vote for me. It's a Wonderful Life obviously gets a vote, and as I've already said, it loses the charm when you see the colourised version. Early silent movies, such as Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, the Murnau film, look sumptuous in black and white. And again, I feel that some of the cinematography in that would be lost if it suddenly had pinks and greens and yellows and yeah. everything blemishing the screen. My first film scene, and like I said, it was difficult to pin down because of having a black and white TV. But aside from like the short, like the Laurel and Hardy's and Harold Lloyd's that were doing the cycle on BBC Two as I was, when I was growing up, I think my earliest was King Kong. Oh yeah
0: of course. I
1: remember as a little child being glued to my TV watching that and being absolutely wowed by the whole thing. That was another one the same way that Star Wars at the age of 4 blew my mind as to what film could be. This was one that I watched at home and blew my mind again and made me go wow this I want to see more of this. Which, sadly, I did. I watched Son of King Kong, which wasn't good. Um, <laughs> oh, just, just
0: on a on a, uh, a side note there, have you ever seen The Mighty Joe Young?
1: Yes, I quite like that as well. It's, uh, yeah. the, the original, the remake's not bad. Not seen it. The remake's not bad, but the original is such a quality film.
0: Yeah. I just want to throw in honorary mentions for the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
1: Oh, why did I not think of that? I'm going to jump the gun and say, uh, I, I jump in now and go, well, now you've also reminded me of uh, the thing from another world. So I'm throwing that one in. <laughs> Ooh,
0: yeah. Yeah. Paper Moon, uh, <laughs> yep. which Great is, uh, uh, was made in the seventies, but, but made in black and white to be evocative of an era. Works brilliantly. And Robert Wise's The Haunting. oh, Which needs to be truth. in black and white. Scared me to death when I first saw it. And and need, works because of the black and white. It's, it's one of those films that stands the test of time. It really does.
1: I am surprised that no one, not even us, has mentioned Schindler's List Yeah. or Sin City, which both yeah, are very yeah. deft in the use of color. They have small glimpses of color, but utilized deftly within a black and white environment for various reasons. For Schindler's List, it, it, the impact of that, that one glimpse of red dress is heartbreaking. And in in Sin City, it replicates the black and white of the comics beautifully.
0: Some fantastic answers. Thank you to everybody who sent stuff in. Uh, Good to uh, see and hear from new voices. Uh, Keep in touch. Keep with us. And you might like this week's question. So I was saying during that piece that I remember watching the Universal horror movies as a kid. I also watched a lot of the Hammer House of Horrors. What I used to do is they used to be on, on Friday nights. Uh, My mum and dad would go out and I would be babysitting my sister. And I was I was supposed to be in bed, but I would watch the Hammer House of horror movies. Mm -hmm. So my question this week are films that you shouldn't have seen, but you sneaked in to watch whether you sneaked downstairs and watched them. and They made an impression you you got them on. uh, You got them on videotape or some streaming, but they were the films that were kind of you. You were slightly too young but they made an impression. Let us know here on our social challenge, right here on The Film File.
1: Yep, And you can do that by following us on social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Just search for Film File UK. If we're on there, you'll see the question pop up. Or you can answer directly via Spotify. The question will be in the show notes, just at the bottom of the um, logo. Or you can email us the answer in, if you've not on any social media channels, and you don't like to use technology. Um, email it through podcast at filmfile dot uk. I I think my one's going to be uh, the Jack Nicholson and uh, Jessica Lange starring um, Postman Always Knocks Twice. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I don't think right. I should have watched that at the age I was because
0: that was quite saucy. Right. <laughs> but yeah, please leave off the saucy films. but I'm thinking of stuff that <laughs> you came down, you watched, you shouldn't have seen it, but left left an impression. So what do we got? On this week's show. Well, as ever, we have a deep dive into Nicholas Rogues as part of our build-up to Halloween, Don't Look Now. We've got reviews of The Haunted Mansion.
1: And I'll be reviewing Totally Killer and VHS 85.
0: We've got gossip, we've got chat, and we have the box office and the news. So, has Taylor Swift dominated not only the concert scene, but the cinema scene? Can anybody else compare what's happening in the box office, Andy?
1: It's all about Taylor Swift this weekend over in the US. The Taylor Swift The Eras Tour goes straight in at the top spot, taking 92.8 million in its first weekend. The Exorcist Believer drops into second place, taking 11 million. Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie, takes another 6.9 million onto its total. Saw X... Is in fourth place with 5.7 million. And the creator, still holding in there, but still needing a big push if it's going to be a profit, takes another 4.3 million. The creator worldwide so far has only reached 79 million. It had an 80 million budget, so it's not even crossed that initial threshold. And it needs to do at least double that before it'll be considered profitable. It's a shame. Stop moaning that there's no originality out there, people, and go and watch films like The Creator because it's beautiful, engaging. And a fresh new story. Anyway, over to the UK, where Taylor Swift again is in the top spot with 5.7 million taken at the UK box office. Paw Patrol: The Mighty Movie takes second place, taking 3.3 million. The Exorcist Believer in third place, taking another million to add to its total. Some Otherhood Hood opened this weekend and took 746,000 to get into fourth place, and The Creator again taking fifth place, 643,000. Taylor Swift: The Eras Tour. Worldwide has taken a total of 123 million in its first three days. For a concert film, that's phenomenal.
0: Okay, so the news. Uh, We still, as of this recording, are in the middle of the, or hopefully the dying days of the actors' strike. And then then we can start giving you some proper news again.
1: Well, unfortunately, with the actors' strike, the negotiations seem to have broken down after a week of talks. Everything seemed to be progressing well over this past week, but uh, on the fifth day, Everything broke apart and apparently the, the snags are two key issues. Streaming revenue share and the use of generative AI, which is where they're mapping artists in order to use them later on, which is ba- basically being used a lot for background actors at the moment, which there's a huge controversy about because they're basically saying, well, we need you for three days, scanning them on day one. And if you need them for more than three days, we don't need you anymore because we've got your digital copies to be able to put into the background. They're struggling to reach common ground. Tensions are apparently rising between all parties. And so they've taken a little bit of a break because uh, SAG-AFTRA has said that it still wants a 2% cut of streaming revenue. But the AMPTP has rebuffed those demands to share streaming revenue. The hope was that they would reach a tentative agreement in the wake of the WGA coming to an agreement only a couple of weeks ago. But it looks like it's uh, we've taken two steps forward and three steps back at this point in time. In a statement released by SAG-AFTRA in the early hours of the morning after the negotiations broke down, Uh, they confirmed that they've broken down. The gap between the sides is too great, in their words. And they released the statements in full, which confirms that at this point in time, talks are suspended. Apparently, the bullying tactics of the studios isn't going down well. It's probably going to be another week or so before they even start to consider getting back around the table. But this isn't going to end anytime soon at this rate.
0: Very disappointing to hear. Uh, it, it means that we don't have tons and tons of casting news or anything in production at this point. Uh, so fingers crossed they can they can put it to bed like they did with the writer strike. But right now it's it, it's it's looking that the two sides couldn't be as far apart if they tried.
1: There is still a fair bit of news because since the writers have gone back to work, pre production on things are starting to get announced. But there's been a lot of a uh, a lot of chatter around the two biggies, Marvel and DC, this week. Let's start with Marvel. First bit of news that we caught on Marvel: there was a US copyright filing that was unearthed this week for the series Ironheart, which has confirmed that Borat star Sasha Baron Cohen is part of the cast lineup.
0: Okay, we'd, we'd heard rumours about that. Apparently, he's playing Mephisto. That's what I'd last heard.
1: There was rumours about that when uh, Werewolf by Night was in the running and um, people suspected that he was going to get cast as Mephisto. So people are still anticipating him entering the MCU as Mephisto. He's only listed in the copyright filing as a mystery man. Right, Could be an interesting casting choice. Uh, he's a very versatile actor, and I think he's got the right kind of mannerisms for like a Mephisto kind of character as well. A manipulator, a deceiver, a, a demon, basically. Hmm. And the biggest story of the week is that Marvel Studios' television division is going through a bit of an intervention at the moment. Yeah. They've realised that their approach to things isn't working. And what surprised me in this news is the fact that apparently there's no specific showrunners set writing teams for the Marvel shows. And it's all very much just, eh, bosh, bosh, bish, bosh, bish, bosh, get it out there.
0: That's been an argument, hasn't it, that we've had that some of the series have liked direction. Yeah. I, I still say that about the first season of Loki. It didn't feel as though they knew what they where they were going with it. WandaVision did, right from the get-go. You know exactly what it was about. It took you three episodes to, for the reveal, but it had a sense of momentum. I felt that with a lot of the Marvel shows. They they liked a yeah. the showrunner.
1: Well, it's resulted in, like, Feige, now that he's more or less got back full control without... Uh, he had the problem of Chapek, basically, sidelined him and just said, churn product, churn product, churn product. And we know that Iger said, slow things down, slow things down, let's get control. Well, they've taken time and they've looked over the first few episodes of Daredevil Born Again that was shot before the strikes all hit. And they've decided to get rid of all the creative team and overhaul the series. And that was the start of all the stories coming out of Marvel thinks it's in trouble now i think it's good that they're taking this time to go we need to rethink things because we know that superhero fatigue is starting to catch up on us yeah. so i'd rather that they rethink what's going to work and what isn't we know that echo agatha Darkhold, diaries and iron heart had reportedly all finished filming prior to the strikes echo still seems to be locked in for a january release next year so we're not expecting any changes to that
0: Though we did mention it's they've lost an episode didn't we
1: yes Uh, But less certain is Agatha Dark Old Diaries or Ironheart. Um, A copyright listing discovered that a late 2025 release is suspected for Ironheart. This is something that's been filmed, that it's going to be another two years before it comes out. Get ready for there to be a complete overhaul on what that series is. Or it just gets scrapped and sections of it get incorporated into something else. There's also been a release this week of the new book, MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios by writer, author Joanna Robinson, who appeared on the Ringer's podcast this week to promote it and discussed around it. And during the appearance on the podcast, she talked about other Marvel series that were in production that have been halted by the strikes. First of all, there's the Yaha Abdul-Mateen II led Wonder Man, which was created by Destin Daniel Cretton, who gave us Shang-Chi. Apparently. And she said to take it with a pinch of salt. Well, she didn't say pinch of salt, but we're saying pinch of salt because that's our catchphrase. She said it's an unconfirmed rumor for now, but it's possible that that whole project's getting scrapped. In her words, even after we heard about Daredevil, I've also heard again the watch scoop that they are trashing the Wonder Man project. Like there's lots of stuff that is going to go in the can. So all the shows that we were expecting to come out, we might not get to see them because the slowdown obviously means that everything's getting put back further and further, and they want to make sure that they're getting the quality back rather than the quantity. Whether the trashing in this situation is going to be the same as Daredevil, where they're basically going to keep what they can, but redraft the series from scratch and work out how to incorporate what's already been shot into a more dynamic series, I think is what they're going for, because apparently the first four episodes were just a legal drama, which, you know... It's Daredevil, and as fans of the comic book, we'd be quite happy to watch a legal drama because we've seen issues of the comic which have basically been that. But your TV audience expect him to at least wear the costume within the first four episodes.
0: Yeah, oh, certainly. By episode one, we want to see see Daredevil in full regalia. Let's be honest. That's why we're tuning in.
1: Yeah, because we've already seen the origin of Daredevil. We've already seen him slowly build up to the costume. We don't need it to have a slow start. It can hit the ground running... We'll see when it when something actually starts up again. But it is nice that they're taking the time to reflect on where they're at and what they need to do to fix things. And hopefully, Vigi will be able to get things back on track.
0: There's uh, a rumor going around uh, that Marvel Studios had regained the rights to The Incredible Hulk from Universal. And a new rumor claiming that a solo movie featuring the Green Goliath himself may be in the works.
1: It's definitely a pinch of salt corner on that one because some of the sources that that's coming from are the I've heard that kind of websites. Right. And that's basically, a, oh, what what's your source? Oh, my source is trust me, bro.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So we'll take that. Uh, we'll we'll head that one over to pinch of salt corner. Uh, also, I don't know if this is a pinch of salt, that Marvel's isn't tracking as well as would be hoped.
1: It's not looking like it's going to have a strong opening. Now, whether it's just that people are waiting until it gets closer before they, they, book, it, they book the films, because that's happened before where something's not tracked well and then it's blown the box office. But tickets have been on sale for a couple of weeks now. Normally, by this point, you'd expect some sold-out shows and it's not doing quite well.
0: We'll keep you informed on that front. Heading over to DC.
1: Yes. There's been a lot of um, flack going on over at DC this week. We know now that James Gunn is scrapping pretty much everyone except for the few characters who were involved in his own shows, which he's got some negative backlash for. But that's because Peacemaker season two is already in production. So of course, he's keeping those people for the moment. But Gal Gadot, Jason Momoa and Ezra Miller won't be reprising their roles in the new DC universe. Momoa is the biggest shock there. Because everyone was expecting that if Aquaman does well, he's going to stick around as Aquaman. But it turns out that's not the case. He's getting scrapped. If the Aquaman comes into the new James Gunn universe, it will be a different actor playing the role. They join Ben Affleck and Henry Cavill as people who were former DC superhero actors who have been replaced. But in Momoa's case, this opens up again the possibility that he might be cast as Lobo for the future. And it's reported that it could be seen as early as Superman Legacy in a cameo as that character. How audiences, general audiences, will take to seeing the same actor playing different people, we don't know yet. But bear in mind that Captain America was the human torch. I think maybe they can look (laughs) past it. Especially seems though Lobo will have the makeup and he'll have the hair. So he'll look very different to
0: what Aquaman looks like. It, It sort of suggests to me, Andy, there's not a huge expectation as well, if we talked about Marvels, for the next Aquaman film.
1: Yeah, um, and we'll know for definite on that one when tickets go on sale for it closer to the time. But I think that the fact there's a lot of negative publicity, which uh, we can spin onto now about Aquaman, because there's been reports come out this week of details of behind-the-scenes drama on the set of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Right. And this report used information that someone's, Everything that was presented in the court notes in Amber Heard and Johnny Depp's infamous trial is open for, for open for grabs if you've got the money to buy it. And so someone bought it in order to get access to the, no- the notes from Amber Heard's psychiatrist over things that she mentioned. And from that, there was allegations from Amber Heard that um, Momoa was turning up on set, deliberately dressed as Johnny Depp with rings and flamboyant clothes in order to intimidate her and harass her she was spoken down to he insisted that she gets removed from the film her role was forcibly drastically reduced for the sequel due to perceived lack of chemistry between heard and momoa and then also elon musk apparently thundered in um sending an angry letter to warner brothers pictures threatening them that if they tried to remove her from the film he would basically annihilate them with all his wealth it's a mess now with regards the allegations that she's made about, um, well, she made to a psychiatrist, about uh, Momoa. He dressed like Johnny Depp. Seriously, have you seen him in interviews? Okay. He always has dressed like that. He's got, he's got that <laughs> bohemian kind of look. And I was quite pleased when I saw that his own publicist turned around and went, yeah, he dresses in a bohemian manner the same way as Depp do- did. He's not doing it on purpose to wind you up. That's how he dresses. That'd be like saying like, oh, I can't believe you turned up in a jean and t- jeans and t-shirt knowing how I feel about that other person with jeans and t-shirts. It's just his clothes. Now, the chemistry, there is no chemistry. We know from the first film that apparently there was problems yeah. between them on set with chemistry. But it sounds to me from all this that, She's basically got a persecution complex by the looks of it, which she's been channeling through her psychiatrist that she genuinely feels that everyone's out together because of everything that was going on. And I kind of get why she'd feel like that, because with everything that was going on, the negativity that was going on in the press at the time, she would start to doubt every action of every person around her. So I'm not sure there's much foundation in a lot of these rumours, but there was definitely a lack of chemistry, and her still being attached to the film, even in a short role, is now... Again, at the forefront of people's negativity towards this film. So we'll find out when Aquaman 2 comes out as to whether or not the chemistry's come back. But um, I think because we're getting so close to it getting released. When this negativity was coming out earlier this year, it was so far away from the release that it wasn't likely to impact on the release of it. Now we're so close to it, this could threaten the box office take.
0: Right. Well as I say we're still open to find out what's happening with the so-called superhero fatigue two movies are going to be the judge of that if they're both good maybe just maybe the future looks bright i can't <laughs> believe i'm saying that what else have we got andy
1: so you remember a few months ago we were talking about how there was a bidding war going on for the halloween franchise now that blumhouse have finished desecrating it i mean uh, yeah. finished making films
0: yeah i think i think uh, we could we, they're going to do one more called halloween The hunt for more profit.
1: Well, we were hopeful that A24 would have managed to bag the rights because the idea of an A24-produced Halloween film would have been so intriguing. What avenue would it have taken? I think it would have been something completely different to what people expect. But instead, they were outbid by Miramax, so I feel that we're just going to get the Halloween franchise. However, it looks like they're more focusing to develop and co-produce a TV series based on the property as opposed to films. The series is said to be a potential launchpad for a whole new cinematic universe, but they're going to focus on TV first. Akkad and Miramax's head of global TV, Mark Hellwig, will oversee the franchise creatively. With Hellwig saying in a statement, "We couldn't be more excited to bring Halloween to television. We're thrilled to expand our long and successful partnership with Trankus and the brilliant Malik Akkad." in introducing this iconic franchise to a new form of storytelling and a new generation of fans.
0: Hang on, wait, wait, <laughs> whoa, whoa. New form of storytelling, what? It's going to be done in as a in, in mime? Uh, Maybe. A sort of sophisticated uh, performance uh, in dance would be an interesting way of doing it.
1: To be fair, if A24 got it, they probably would have made it as an interpretive <laughs> dance, which would have been great. I'm not sold because Miramax, I, I just feel that they'll just churn out it as generic but i'm going to keep an open mind because the halloween franchise is one that i would like to see get some glory again and have some reason to exist we'll see now spinning off the back of that uh let's just uh it's kind of linked to the halloween franchise because david gordon green wrecked that and he's currently wrecking the exorcist franchise well the new exorcist film which i i harshly reviewed last week no I didn't harshly review it no, enough, I don't you think. Were,
0: it wasn't harsh, Andy. It was, a, it was a demolishing.
1: It is worth noting at this point that two of our listeners uh, who deliberately didn't listen to my review because they didn't want to be influenced then reported on Facebook what they thought of it and it echoed everything that I'd said. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hi, Lindsay and Owen. You, you know who you are and you know that I'm on your side. But with it being so ripped apart by critics, 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, and audiences aren't rating it very highly, there's a lot of speculation as to whether it's going to continue in the vein that it was going to. Now, Blumhouse and Universal need to continue it because, like we said last week, they spent $400 to get the rights to the property, so they need to make money off it. But it's currently rumoured that they might be sidelining David Gordon Green And he might get pushed away from the project to bring someone else in to try to fix it.
0: Did you you ever see the TV series? It was fantastic. Yeah, I mean that was a a direction to go in, and a sort of quasi sequel. Yeah, to to some degree, and uh, much more, much more uh, intelligent and well thought through and closer to what The Exorcist was about than from what you said the, the new movie is.
1: Yeah, I mean, Exorcist, Exorcist The Exorcist series showed us what The Exorcist as a franchise could be. Sadly, David Gordon Green clearly has not even watched that series, let alone the original film. Let's move on to Michael Mann, who has now confirmed that Heat 2 is going to be his next
0: movie. Okay. Well, the, I noticed the book was out. I nearly bought it. It was uh, 99p. Uh, which I thought that was interesting, but I I, I didn't. I, I think I forgot and missed the offer.
1: I picked up the audio book, but I couldn't take to the audio book because it felt like someone was reading a screenplay to me. I think it will make a good film, but it was written as though it was a screenplay. Didn't quite work. I might pick up the actual physical book and see if it reads better if I'm reading it rather than someone else. But um, he appeared on stage at Deadlines Contenders events last weekend in London. And when asked whether the novel would be adapted to screen, as his next work. He responded, yes. Meg Gardner and myself wrote the novel Heat 2, which came out right when we were shooting Ferrari. It's done really well. I plan to shoot that next, Uh, which makes a slight change to his last comment on the matter back in August when he said he wanted to make it, but if he doesn't, he doesn't know whether he's going. And it was very like up in the air, but now he seems to be determined to do it. Start the casting speculation rumors. Everyone's already saying that they're expecting that Adam Driver will be playing Neil.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, the Robert De Niro character. Yeah, I could see that.
1: Start your speculation as who's going to be playing Pacino's character. And uh, we'll find yeah, out. Yeah, let us know. True.
0: Let us know what you think.
1: And also, you've got you've also got, like, Chris Sherliss, who was Val Kilmer's role as well, needs to be filled. There's, there's quite a lot of good roles in there. I'm well up for a heat, too. I'm well and truly up for it, because I think that kind of genre is what man really excels in.
0: Yeah. I've got something for Pinch of Salt Corner, Two Doctor Who spin-offs have been mentioned somewhere on the internet. Take them with a pinch of salt. One is a unit uh, spin-off, which I could see. Yeah, uh, and the other one, less less convinced by, which is a David Tennant-led six-part series called Partners in Time. So I'm assuming it's him and Donna. Nice idea. Take with a pinch of salt.
1: Spiderwick Chronicles. Now we know that the eights episode series had already been shot for Disney Plus, but then Disney Plus decided that they don't want it and ditched it. It's now found another home. It's been picked up by Roku exclusively for the US market. We still need to wait, how, wait to find out how we're going to see it in the international markets. But it's a Paramount Television Studios and 20th century television who had already shot it. So it could still land on Disney Plus in the UK. Paramount Plus might get it instead. We don't know yet. That That's definitely good news for all the people who were involved in that project who thought it might be one of those shows that just disappears into the ether, never to be seen again. Dario Argento has been casting on his new horror feature, which um, he's now added Oscar nominee and Golden Globe winner Isabel Hooperts. Chaos Reign has reported that Hooperts was in attendance at the Luca Film Festival in Tuscany during the final week of September, where she received an award, and she revealed during that appearance that she'll soon shoot Argento's next film which we'll be shooting in the spring next year. Argento, Master of Horror, Susperia, Deep Red, etc. Everyone's let, excited. Let, let's to Let's not see mention TV. Dracula. Let's not yeah, mention let's, his Dracula. Let's not mention Dracula. And uh, we've discovered this week the really sad news that the after party has been cancelled.
0: There's no room left for me on this this mortal plane anymore.
1: And I've discussed with you, and I've discussed with a few people at work, and it became... It from me mentioning the after party being cancelled to people at work and realising no one knew what I was talking about and when I said it's a show which is a murder mystery where every episode takes a different kind of movie motif theme of presentation and if you're a fan of cinema in general you will love the way that it it homages so many different approaches and all of them said why do we not know about this show and this is down to how Apple TV Plus advertises itself
0: yeah I agree we had it as our neat thing you, for both of us. Both of us yeah. had the after party as our neat thing. So we were doing our bit.
1: We were trying to promote the stuff, but unfortunately it didn't get the viewership that they needed on season two. And um, we're never going to see the season three, which um, I'm very disappointed with, especially after the end of season two kind of hinted at where we were going to go with on the next season. And we also had the news this week that Michael Caine, the legendary Michael Caine, has decided yeah. to step away from acting. He's completed his most recent film, which is The Great Escaper, which is out in cinemas at the moment. And that is going to be his last. Now, we do know, let's be honest, at the back of our mind, we know if Christopher Nolan says, do you want to pop in for a cameo in one of my <laughs> films? He'll be there because he's said so many times that he loves Christopher Nolan and he'll do anything for him. So don't be surprised if he does pop up in Nolan films. But as regards chasing projects, he's got his money. He's happy to sit and retire. And just spend the rest of his years just enjoying life. And he deserves it because he's brought us so much joy.
0: Absolutely, I'm guessing that kind of brings us to an end for this week. But we've, we've got a couple of sad mentions, haven't we?
1: We have. It's, it's, been a, it's not been a very nice week for fans of film, fans of TV, and fans of comic books. We'll start with the comic yeah. book loss. Now, you might not be aware of this name, but this is a comic book creator, writer, and artist who was responsible for co-creating some iconic characters. The aforementioned Lobo, who um, Momoa may be playing, was one of his co-creations. The beloved Rocket Raccoon was one of his comic book creations that he um, co-created. The Justice League International was his idea.
0: Oh, hey, do you know I'm on the cover of one of the Justice Leagues?
1: Oh, yeah. Well done. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I am... I am on the cover of, and I can't tell you which issue, but uh, I uh, I was the model for uh, one of the issues which got a super villain on. There you go.
1: And he also um, was responsible for Omega Men, and that is Keith Giffen. Um, he was a legendary artist. He was, you know, for people like myself and and Lee who grew up through that era of like the seventies development of comics. He's responsible for so many of our beloved creations.
0: Absolutely. Without Keith Giffen, we wouldn't have had the Guardians of the Galaxy as it is now. He, he As well as being an artist, he was a co-plotter and writer uh, and worked across a huge amount of work. And was basically, he brought new life into the Guardians of the Galaxy. And a, a fantastic creator. Sadly missed, um, left us at the age of 70. And a big shock. To the comic book industry. Over in Movie Land, we lost this week, Andy.
1: The great Piper Laurie. Piper Laurie. What can you say about Piper Laurie?
0: I, I didn't know about this until you mentioned it.
1: Films like The Hustler, Children of Lesser God, Return to Oz, a film that traumatised so many children.
0: Included, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Mo- probably most recognisable.
0: You're going to say the same thing, aren't you?
1: There's two things. Carrie okay and Twin Peaks. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Piper Laurie could convey anger and emotion on screen, on TV or film, better than the majority of other people. She was a f- force of nature when she was dominating screens. And, you know, in, I know in Twin Peaks, there was also that dubious subplot which had her character um, dressing up like a Chinese man, which um, it's best kind of forgotten, but she kind of <laughs> sold it. <laughs> yeah.
0: I forgot all about that, but yes, you brought that memory back.
1: (laughs) It works so well in anything Lynch, but if anyone else had done it, it would be unforgivable. But she was a magnificent force on screen. She, you know, dominated every film that she was in. She really dominated. She was nominated for so many awards for all her roles, but her role in Carrie as Carrie's overbearing and religious nut mother is probably one of the most iconically scary normal person performances because this wasn't a killer.
0: Yeah, she's, she's the villain by being a mom.
1: Yeah, she was an overprotective mother who didn't want her daughter to grow up and becomes a villain as a result. She's magnificent, absolutely magnificent. She passed away age 91 and boy, she, we're going to have to deep dive Carrie at some point. We, we need to get around oh, to that. Must. And uh, I think we need to deep dive Twin Peaks. At some point as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, and lastly we're gonna mention because it's this is a geek show, Mark Goddard left us and most of you be thinking who he. <laughs> but if you grew up at a certain point, Lost in Space was a major, major series, and he was forever major Don West.
1: Yeah, he played the role beautifully in the series. It was he didn't get a lot of like he didn't he was one of those people who has leading man kind of looks but never kind of tapped into the leading man market. He had bit roles here and there. He did pop up in the Lost in Lost in Space remake of the 90s, which I've got some love for, and I know you have as well.
0: Yeah, Stephen Hopkins uh, directed it. I thought it was much maligned. It had all the silliness of a Lost in Space script uh, when people thought it went crazy at the end with time travel. It just felt lost in space. Uh, yeah. I, I'm always surprised that, that the hate and the dislike this film gets. And I, and I did like the Netflix series as well.
1: Yep, but yeah, Major Don West, Mark Goddard, has left us age of 87 after struggling with pulmonary fibrosis, a sad loss to geekdom everywhere.
0: And that, folks, that's the news. Before we move on, yes, we do this every week, we suggest that you head over, if you haven't already done so, to your favourite podcast platform, and subscribe to the Film File podcast, and leave a like, and become part of the Filmfile family. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that as well, simply by doing.
1: Heading on over to social media channels, searching for Filmfile UK. We're probably going to be on there. You can get in touch with us through there, or you can contact us directly via email, podcast at filmfile.uk is what you want to be sending it to. We'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts, suggestions, films that you'd like us to see, or start thinking about what your films of this year have been ready for our end-of-year review that we inevitably do sometime in late
0: January. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. In this build-up to Halloween, we're covering some of the scariest movies of all time. And this is a classic. Came out in 1973 starring Julie Christie, Donald Sutherland. It is Don't Look Now. Hey! Hey, hey! Laura! What on earth was that, John? It was Christine. Christine is dead, Laura.
1: You're sad. You're so sad and there's no need to be.
0: I've seen her. My sister's psychic. You can't contact people, can you? She's trying to get in touch with us.
1: She's trying to warn us.
0: Directed by Nicholas Roeg, an adaptation from the 1971 short story by Daphne de Maurier, Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland portray Laura and John Baxter, a married couple who travel to Venice following the death of their daughter. John is an architect and accepts a commission to restore a church. While in Venice, they have strange encounters, firstly with two sisters, one of whom claims to be a clairvoyant and informs them that their daughter is trying to contact them and warn them of danger. John dismisses this and then starts to experience strange and odd sightings. This is a horror film? Yes. It's a very grown-up film. This is a time back in the 70s where films weren't made for a teenage or children's audience. This was made for grown-ups. It has a controversial and explicit sex scene between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. It is innovative. If you know Nicholas Roeg's work from, say, The Man Who Fell to Earth, He had an incredible editing style. It's also a film that deals with grief, the loss of a child, and the loss of love between a relationship. It also has some imagery that, to be honest, will scare you to death. This is a film that has grown in reputation. This is a film that's considered a classic and one of the best British horror films. Andy?
1: I must have been about 19 or 20 when I first stumbled upon this. I think it was a late night Channel 4 broadcast that I'd watched. And I'd, I'd never heard of it, but it was just one of them that I, I always tuned into the late night films because, you know, being a student, you've got nothing else to do. And I was stunned by how how intense and it kind of felt claustrophobic throughout it. There was a building rising tension and unnerving energy throughout it. And it's how well it deftly utilizes some of the tropes of horror, some of the jumps, some of the shocks, some of the lensing in order to tell what effectively is just a muse on grief. It's such a powerful story. It's adapted from the book, but it takes a slightly different approach in the book. It is remarkably faithful to the book, but the approach that Rogue chose to take to focus on that impact of grief on the relationship was such a smart choice. The book started the tale with them, they've recently lost their daughter to meningitis and then go to Venice for a holiday. But Rogue instead chooses to have the daughter die by misadventure. She falls into a lake near their home and drowns. And that's a perfect use of foreshadowing and precognition as um, John, played by Sutherland, senses something is wrong and it, it showcases his slight psychic energies and psychic abilities that are picked up by the psychics that they encounter in Venice and starts to build the sense that something's not right throughout. And it's through Sutherland's actions throughout his experiences in Venice, that it works so well, because it's through him that we start to sense that something is unnervingly not right.
0: There's there's the constant associations with water. Uh, you mentioned the drowning of the little girl right in the beginning. The fact that a glass gets knocked over, the fact that we go to Venice, there is this sense that uh, it maintains a presence throughout the film. I, I, otherwise, you're going to get just a... a a truly good gothic ghost story. Mm. It's that exploration of grief, an exploration of of a marriage trying to refocus itself, and the nightmare of this this serial killer that is hunting in in Venice. Uh, There's the use of colour, the colour red. Laura, the little girl, wears a a red coat, and that establishes an association as John keeps catching glimpses of what appears to be a child wearing a, a, a similar red coat. It plays with time and space at at one point where he sees the future and um, he becomes a a bit of a voyeur to his own life throughout what is real and what isn't real. I have to say that the ending, along with sort of Nicholas Rogue's fragmented editing that he did, his, his innovative style of editing, really. Really unsettles me. This film still unsettles me. It, it's a beautiful and brilliant film. It's scary, and not in the way of that one would think of a ghost story. Mm. Uh, there are moments which are absolutely terrifying, uh, and especially the ending. Uh, and yet, it's it is it's it's a beautiful film uh, about a relationship that's trying to rekindle itself after after tremendous loss. It, it is it is such a great movie, and I don't think, and I, I love Sutherland. This is Sutherland at his peak Uh, yeah he's a peak of his of his career uh he and julie christie i don't think were ever better and that's saying a lot because donald sutherland and julie christie have been in some fantastic work
1: yeah this is a film in which the final revelation which we won't spoil for anyone who's not seen it i know it's 50 years old but there's always someone who stumbles upon old films for the first time it offers a shock one of the best shock twists that you'll ever get And it serves to clarify some of the elements from earlier in the film that might have been a bit muddled or confused. But foreknowledge of the reveal of this doesn't actually result in the film being weaker. And it was on repeated viewings that I started to appreciate more and more the layers that were put into the film, the nuances of grief that are so realistically played out. In the early scenes in Venice, the couple are very cold and distant to each other. Laura is on medication since the loss of their daughter. John has thrown himself into his work. They are distant. He's restoring the church to its former glory. However, after the encounter with the psychic sisters, Laura kind of finds a new lease on life. She finds a reason to live. And the change in her demeanor warms the relationship back up again, which leads to the controversial sex scene. That did they or didn't they? That's been speculated for decades and no one will ever know the complete truth. Uh, But it was suggested that maybe the actors got a bit too intimate on set in front of the camera. But you see them kind of bond together. They kind of become a unit again. They kind of become a, a couple again. But then Laura becomes more and more obsessed with the idea that their daughter's spirit is with them while John starts to become obsessed with the thought that she's actually still alive. And that separates them again and moves them to another stage of like realizing that this relationship is over. Grief of the loss of a child has destroyed their relationship and like, and they'll never be able to recover it fully. And this is a theme that it really hits quite close to home at times because, you know, me and my wife lost a child. Our first child was lost. And we were told at the time that so many couples after the loss of their child separate. And that's shown in this. Now, me and my wife, we've been together ever since and we've actually grown stronger and stronger over the years. But I can understand how grief can make you. It makes you almost blame the other person when it's not their fault because you don't You don't know how to accept loss of a child. No parent should ever bury their child. And that's what leads to this kind of breakdown of relationships. And I think it's handled absolutely realistically, brutally and perfectly within all the emotional layers of this film.
0: This was Rogue's third film after the magnificent walkabout and performance. And then subsequently went on to make Man Who Fell to Earth. And, And all of his films have this sort of sense of of time all happening at once. And we said that the way that uh, Sutherland's character has almost a, a precognitive look at the world in, in certain scenes. And it adds to the unease and the general sense of surreal that the film starts to become as we move through it. It's a film that still, for me, packs a punch. Yeah. Even now, as you said, the, the ending, once you've seen it, it, it sort of hits you hard. And watching it again, it doesn't lose that momentum. It still feels like a fresh shock. I remember it that, that image burning itself into my brain for an awful long time. It is a, a fantastic film that works on many, many levels, as we said. And it is, I think it is my favourite Nicholas Rogue film.
1: I concur entirely with that one. It's a film that I've revisited multiple times, and I'll look forward to revisiting it again in future years. It's one of those films that you just feel is perfect in the way that it tackles everything. Oh, yeah. Sutherland so and Christie, you've already said are fantastic, but can i just do a specific mention to the genuine look of angst and grief on his face when he pulls his daughter out of the lake is the most yeah. powerful image that has ever stuck in my head. I can see it in my head now, and it, it, it feels real. It's such a great performance. He was at the peak of his game. This film is a sterling example of independent filmmaking from an era when build-up drama and development of characters was far more important than shocks and scares, and the pairing of the best two actors of that time really complements the whole thing. It's a stunning portrayal of grief with a supernatural edge to it, and it deserves to be part of everyone's film collection. Uh,
0: We don't often use the word masterpiece, but in this particular case, I think don't look now is a masterpiece of of, of filmmaking. It's a, it's a horror film. It's a psychological thriller. It's a ghost story. It's a film about loss. It's a film about about love. If you've not seen it, I highly suggest you go out and watch it. Andy, if you want to watch it, where can you find Don't Look Now?
1: It's on a few services at the moment. I think Studio Canal have it. It's on ITVX and it landed on BBC last week. So this is perfect timing for us to cover it on the show because it's on iPlayer right now. So if you're in the UK, get on BBC iPlayer, treat
0: yourself to this film. We'll be back next week with another Halloween themed deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. I have one, you have a couple. Do you want to go first? Build up to mine?
1: Yeah, I'll start off with it landed on Amazon just over a week ago. It's another f- one of those freaky kind of films where it's taking a concept of an 80s film but putting a hover slant on it, and that's totally
0: killer. I quite fancy this. I must be honest. I, I I read the script ages back and I thought, I like the sound of this. Don't let me down, Auntie. Tell me what you think. I'd like to report a crime that hasn't happened yet. Have you seen the movie Back to the Future? Basically, I'm living that movie right now, which is how I know there's gonna be a murder tonight. <laughs> Hate time travel movies. They never make any sense.
1: Happy Halloween. How about we all stay in and hand out Halloween candy? No, Mom. You know how hard this time of year is for us. Your friends were murdered 35 years ago. It's not 1987 anymore. Stay safe, honey. I love you. (sighs) Following in the footsteps of films such as Happy Death Day and Freaky comes another modern horror that knowingly riffs on an old film from a different genre. This time, the film being given a horror riff is back to the future. In a tale that sees a town where 35 years ago in 1987, three teenage girls were killed by a masked killer nicknamed the Sweet Sixteen Killer. Now, in present day, the murderer has resurfaced, resulting in teenager Jamie Hughes, played by and Shipka, accidentally going back in time to 1987, where she has a chance to stop the events from ever happening. In doing so, she also gets to discover secrets about her mother, Pam, played by Dewey Bowen as an adult and Olivia Holt as the younger version, casting a whole new light on the person she thought she was. However, preventing the past from playing out the same way isn't as easy as you'd think, and Jamie finds her whole existence may be threatened by her meddling. This film knows exactly what it is and what it's riffing on, and it makes it very clear early on with mentions of the famous films about Marty McFly. And in doing so, it allows you to just embrace the fun and carnage going on. The rules of time travel are as loose and wild as they need to be to allow for a fun and genuinely funny take on a slasher genre movie. We get to flip back and forth from the events of 1987 that Jamie is interfering with and to the present day where her friend Amelia, who created the time machine, notices changes starting to happen. It's a neat way of playing the ripple effect of time without resorting to changing photographs and newspapers. So long as you don't think too hard about the logistics of it all and just let the film play, you're in for a good time. The 80s look, vibe and style is captured beautifully and the social etiquettes of the era is riffed on, mocked and shone a spotlight on in a manner that isn't heavy handed but makes clear how much we've grown in our attitudes over the decades. The music of the era is given some space to get toes tapping and the nostalgia centres of those of us who lived through that era will connect with it. But much like Back to the Future, those who weren't alive back then won't feel alienated as the core essence speaks to them. The teenager-out-of-time approach is a great way to examine our society around us and compare how far we've come, whilst also presenting a fun adventure. Totally Killer gets it right, and it balances the slasher horror, humour, and drama effectively, with Shipka really selling her part in the central role. The film comes from Blumhouse and Amazon's collaborative union, and it feels more like the Blumhouse of old who did things differently than the tired formulaic studio that has been dropping substandard horror on the big screen recently. This is well worth checking out.
0: Okay, so I'd forgotten, actually, that I'd actually seen this movie. That's how interested I was in Haunted Mansion. A dark spirit has cursed this house.
1: Surprise. Is anybody else seeing this? Wait!
0: (laughs) If we don't stop him, we could be trapped here forever. He's haunted mansion. He look human, sorta. He carried his head in a hat box. What part of that is sorta? The story is single mother Gabby, played by the great Rosaria Dawson, who I love in most things that she's in. She and her son buy a Louisiana mansion and discover that, well, it's a haunted mansion film. That it is haunted. She does the right thing. She enlists a paranormal tour guide. Yeah, not a proper scientist. One who used to be a scientist, Ben played by Lakeith Stanfield, to help get rid of the haunting spooks. You remember that back in 2003 Disney won a bit of a role with Pirates of the Caribbean and basically suggested let's make more movies based on one of their theme park rides. So they came up with Haunted Mansion, it starred Eddie Murphy and it basically did okay. So when Eddie Murphy was going through his let's play in family films, we've had the underrated but much-loved Tomorrowland, and the probably best-ignored Jungle Cruise. So when Disney took it upon themselves to do Haunted Mansion, they thought it was going to neither be a sequel or a remake, or in fact, a reboot. Let's go somewhere else. They got a great cast. They got the Disney CGI team all over it. And you'd think this could turn out pretty good. I mean, it's got Owen Wilson in it. It's got Danny DeVito. Got Jamie Lee Curtis. It's got from the after party, Tiffany Haddish. You're thinking this is an instant classic. I couldn't have been more bored. I don't know what was going on because I lost interest about twenty minutes in. Yes, there are some nice little ghost scares. There's some imaginative ghost scenes. What's going in the story? I have absolutely no idea. And even worse, of having no idea, I had no interest. In trying to know what was going on, it's just one lame gag after another with plenty of, of CGI. Oh, it's also got Jared Leto in with <laughs> CGI cheekbones. If that's not another reason to dislike this film, I don't know what is. It kind of feels like an amusement ride. Uh, through the next door, there's uh, some shrieking and scaring, and then you move on to the next spooky thing, which isn't particularly spooky or scary. Good cast, lousy movie. Do yourself a favor. Do the ride instead.
1: It's a shame because that cast lineup is really good. You'd think so. Concept-wise, remember when this was announced? And I like they, they had the idea that they could do a whole franchise with each one being based on a different one of the Haunted Mansion rides because all the different theme parks that Disney has, the Haunted Mansion plays a different story. But I, I don't think they're going to be going any further with this one. Maybe for maybe in twenty years' time, they'll go back to this one again. Moving on. So the last film that I've got landed on shudder in recent weeks and that's this year's installment of the vhs series which is vhs 85.
0: Who is that handsome dude is that on <laughs>
1: there's
0: the lady of the hour That you know what
1: you're dealing with. Why don't you just tell us where you got these videotapes from? Tell us what they are. The VHS series of films have always been a mixed bag of entries, with the home video found footage shtick used in collections of short films from directors and creators in the horror genre. Each film tended to be mostly decent tales, with one or two segments in each one that didn't land as well. The franchise has seen multiple entries, included a few spin-off films, but in recent years it's been picked up by Shudder for annual outings. And over the last three years, the balance of strong shorts to weak has shifted somewhat. With this latest entry, whilst each of the shorts are well made, only one stood out as feeling worthy. The biggest problem with this series of films now is that it does seem to feel that we've seen it all before, and the found footage approaches contrivances are becoming more and more apparent. There are moments in a few of the shorts, primarily No Wake and Ambrosia, both created by Mike P. Nelson, where the idea that someone would still be carrying around a bulky camcorder is simply ridiculous. And with the two segments being simply average overall, it's harder to ignore the forced attempts to play off as home video. That's not to say that those segments don't offer anything. In fact, they are bloody and brutal. And there is a bit of a smart element in how they link, but it feels too familiar. And if you've been a viewer of the whole run of films, it feels that they're just being churned out now. The segments TKNOGD Techno God, did nothing for me except feel like a student art piece, which is quite apt given the basis of the short. It felt like an absolute slog to get through at the midway point of the movie, almost resulting in me giving up entirely as I'd been underwhelmed by God of Death just before it. But I persevered mainly due to being intrigued by the interconnecting story, Total Copy by David Bruckner, just enough to want to see how that played out Thankfully, I did stick around, because then I was treated to Scott Derrickson's Dream Kill, which played with the approach in a sharp, smart, hand again, bloody manner, with a bizarre tale of psychic visions and technology. To say more would be to spoil the surprise, but this segment makes sitting through the rest of the film just about worth it, and it makes sense that, aside from the epilogue to total copy, this is the high point that they chose to end the film on. VHS still has some life in it as an output for short films, but maybe we need to not churn them out every year and instead take time to curate stronger entries.
0: So, not much to review this week. Andy, is next week going to make up for everything?
1: Well, there's one of the biggies next week. And when I say biggie, I mean three hours and 26 minutes worth of biggie. And that's Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon arriving at cinemas this week.
0: And that's its pre-run before Apple TV, yeah?
1: Yes. Finding time to sit down and watch it in a cinema? Is going to be a struggle, but I'm determined to find a slot that I can manage to try to fit it in. Christine celebrates its 40th anniversary this week, so a chance to see John Carpenter's Beloved, except by John Carpenter himself, classic, um, on the big screen. I like it. It Lives Inside is also released, and of course, Trolls Band Together is the film that I'm going to miss.
0: (laughs) Nicely said, sir.
1: <laughs> the kids will love it, but the Trolls films are not for me. Now TV and Sky, mark this one on your list to watch if you didn't catch it when it added similar release. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Absolute joy of a film with some creative, stunning animation. Well worth checking out.
0: I think that's our family movie night set for next week.
1: Well, you you could go for another family movie night and watch Pearl.
0: Maybe not. Yes, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've still not seen it, so I, I need to see Pearl.
1: <laughs> Don't treat the young to it.
0: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: And uh, Pope's Exorcist also lands on Now TV and Sky. On Netflix, um, Bill Burr's latest Old Dads lands on Amazon. Upload Season 3 finally arrives. I've been waiting for this. I love Upload. It's a cracking series. And a film called The Other Zoe also arrives. And that's pretty much it. It's all about Flower Moon for me this next week. So, fingers crossed, I'll be able to share my thoughts on it by the time we get round to next
0: recording. And that, folks, that, nicely brings us on towards the end of the show. But before we go, and yes, we do it every week, we give you our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed, whether that be a book, a film, as long as we've enjoyed it, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, your neat thing for this week is...
1: Recent app that landed on PlayStation 5, and that's the Sony Pictures Core app, which is accessing the Sony Pictures Core channel, which is a way to buy films and stream films and TV stuff, rental or purchase, What's so good about that, do you say? Well, there's a huge wealth of Sony content in there. Obviously, any Sony films will get released through there, so it gives you that access, but you can get that through Amazon. What difference does it make? Now, the neat thing is that if you have PlayStation Plus Premium, which is the higher tiered PlayStation Plus subscription, which I've been subscribing to, and being a little disappointed in the fact that the premium top tier one, didn't seem to be getting things to make it worth the premium well premium users get access to around about 50 to 100 films each month to stream for free via the service and i checked through the list of films on there and through looking through the list i've added a chunk of films onto our deep dive list for next year as a result because there's some belters in there uh there's even things such as tucker and dale versus evil which i've convinced the wife wife and daughter that we're going to watch before the end of this month it's a great addition to the streaming services as part of my playstation plus gaming plan that i was paying a ridiculous amount for it doesn't feel like i'm paying a ridiculous amount anymore because i'm getting a streaming service at the same time sony pictures core channel if you've got a playstation 5 get it installed have a look through the list and see what's on there and I guarantee that you will find that it's worth upgrading your PlayStation Plus subscription
0: just to be able to watch these films. We mentioned in the news the passing of Keith Giffen, a comic book creator uh, responsible for, uh, well, just some of the greats in comic books. We had uh, uh, the reboot of The Blue Beetle, for instance. Uh, We mentioned Lobo through this, The Guardians of the Galaxy. There's one book that Keith Giffen worked on. Uh, he he spent five years on this particular book, and I went back and read just a few issues of it. And I had one of those flashback memories to a time and a place when I first read these comics and what they meant to me. And that was Keith Giffen's run on a series called Legion of Superheroes. Ooh. Legion of Superheroes was always a little bit hokey. It was a, a lot of fun, uh, generally marred by characters with really, really bad names. Check out the books to to go through it. But they were heroes, uh, uh, teen heroes, in the 30th century. And they were basically a a group of kids keeping the galaxy together. And I loved it. It was always a a favourite. I've always been a bit of a sucker for teen books. Teen Titans, the first X-Men, and The Legion. Alongside Paul Levitz, Keith Giffen made The Legion from being a fun read into being a Book that you would not miss month to month. They brought the book up to date. They gave it serious style. They made it fun. They introduced characters who added to a huge stellar cast that was already in there and made it feel fantastic. I loved it. It was one of those every month I couldn't wait, and every month I would not be disappointed. This was the height of my comic reading, and this was one of those series that just made it into my top picks every month, uh, especially the run where Keith Giffen brings in Darkseid to take on the Legion. Fantastic
1: read. The Great Darkness Saga.
0: The Great Darkness Saga. Look, you can check it out. Go to Amazon UK or if you're outside of the country, amazon.com and check out some of the collected editions of The Legion of Superheroes, written by Paul Levitz, co-plotted and drawn by Keith Giffen. They were just genius. Uh, a sad loss to comics, uh, but some a great legacy of work, uh, and that's us done for this week. Andy, are we going to be back next week?
1: Of course, we're going to be back. Have we missed a week? Oh, in that's a week? good to know. We've missed like two weeks in the past year, and that was through like either ill health or Christmas.
0: So, yes, is is the answer to that.
1: <laughs> and even when we even when we've missed a week through ill health or something, we've still recorded something to bring something <laughs> yes. new alongside the something old. All we need is something borrowed and something blue and we filled the whole
0: collection. (laughs) Absolutely. You know what, Andy? I wish I didn't have to believe in prophecy. I do, but I wish I didn't have to. That's an interesting one. Did that have James Mason in? Uh, I'm just saying that because it gives us a chance for you to do your James Mason impression.
1: James Mason? (laughs) (laughs) It might be a James Mason film. I'm oh, that left light. an impression. Oh yeah, yeah. In my bed sheets. <laughs> Outtake time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay, that can't get that image out. Go and bleach my eyes, please. Bleach for the artist's side. I said, I don't, don't look, look now. <laughs> I've looked. What? What happens? <laughs> oh, you've looked. You've spoilt your Christmas.